Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash Cardio Nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Cardio Nerds, welcome back to another awesome episode of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series. I can't tell you how excited we are to be joined by colleagues and fellows from the Scripps Clinic Cardiology Fellowship, directly from a city that really became a, sort of a second home for me back in my own training. So Drs. Andrew Cheng and Christine Shen, welcome to the show. So glad you're here. Excited to learn from you. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Thank you so much for having us, guys. I have the distinct pleasure of being able to introduce very much the smarter of the two fellows, Christine Shen, who is currently a first year here at the Scripps Clinic Cardiology Fellowship. She is a native Southern Californian who completed her medical education at Loma Linda University and then came down here to San Diego and finished her internal medicine training here and then decided to stay on. I met Christine as a resident and honestly, within a few minutes, you can tell really two things about her. She's incredibly smart and she's incredibly motivated to work hard, take care of her patients, and she cares a lot. So for that reason, we recruited her hard and we were happy that she came back and we're really excited that uh, she's here with us. Hi, guys. I'm introducing Andrew Chang, my chief fellow at Scripps. He's going into advanced heart failure. He's really the perfect person for this podcast, not only because he has the voice for it, but because he's an excellent teacher. Um, and just to give you a sense of that, just last month, he assigned me to do our echo diastology lecture. And it's my second month of fellowship. So I don't know anything about echo, let alone diastology. But he sat down with me one afternoon and just taught me beginning to end about it. And he has a gift for explaining complex concepts. And he's been doing this with the other first years as well. And he teaches not only the fellows, but also the residents. And he actually won the Fellow Teacher of the Year Award this past June. So that's Andrew. Congratulations, Andrew. And Christine, that was a great introduction. Guys, I'm so excited to be in San Diego, one of my favorite cities. Actually, uh, it was the city that my wife and I decided to take a honeymoon. It was my first time to the West Coast. It was amazing. We flew there. I thought I was so grown up. Got there. It was my first time renting a car. Super excited. And then I found out that my license was expired and then I couldn't rent a car. And luckily it was the end. It ended up being a, just a joyous, a beautiful honeymoon. Hang, hung out at the bay, checked out the zoo. Amazing times. This really, really brings it back to me. Guys, in this late summer air, take us to your favorite place in San Diego. 
where we can have a great chill session and talk about some serious cardiology. So we've developed somewhat of a tradition here at the Scripps Cardiology Fellowship where we will grab a very distinct San Diego cuisine, the California burrito, and we'll head on down to Fiesta Island where we'll make a bonfire, enjoy some good food and watch the sunset and then just hang out and talk and relax. It's just a fun way to bond and to get away from some of the craziness of life. So that's pretty much where we would be. And uh, I think it'd be a great time. So if you're ever back in town, just hit us up and we'll be able to go down there and hang out. Is the burrito going to give me GERD tonight? Definitely, yes. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> for, to add context for those of you who don't know what a California burrito is, it's basically a burrito with fries in it. So it's essentially this calorie bomb of awesomeness. So it's very much the thing that we tell our patients to stay away from. But if you're ever in town, you definitely have to try it. Wait, I live in San Diego for like five years. How come I've never had a California burrito? <laughs> <laughs> Today's the day. Today is the day. Today is absolutely. <laughs> I was going right, to say, guys. Amit, in your time in San Diego, where did you like to go? I, I went to Coronado all the time. Uh, I thought that the view of the city from the other side of that bridge is just absolutely gorgeous. A big fan of uh, extraordinary desserts. La Jolla Beach was always a favorite, especially we can go and see mm-hmm. the, the sea lions and like seals or sea lions. Seals from SeaWorld? <laughs> sea lions. <laughs> you know, sea little- lions. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you went to the fancy places, moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Today, we're going to grab a burrito, have a bonfire on the beach, get away from the craziness of life, but dive into the craziness of cardiology, guys. So tell us about an awesome case. So we meet a 63-year-old female who presents with shortness of breath. She says, I woke up at 2.30 a.m. I'm extremely short of breath. She sits up straight and she feels better. And she describes that she's been gaining weight for the past two weeks. She went from 215 pounds to 224 pounds or nine pounds in two weeks. And then she says that it's been harder to do the things that she normally does. She likes to get her nails done. And at the nail salon, there are different rooms and she was walking from one room to the other and she actually had to stop to sit down. And so she knew that was very abnormal and she's well established with the clinic at Scripps. So shortly later that morning, she called the clinic, describes her symptoms, and she's actually instructed to take some more of her diuretic. Um, One of her medications is torsamide. So over the phone, they say, why don't you take an extra diuretic? But that afternoon, she can sense that something is still very wrong. So she comes into the ED. I'll give you a rundown of her past medical history. She had mitral stenosis from severe calcifications, possibly rheumatic heart disease, and she had her mitral valve replaced with a PFO closure. She had HEFPEF with an EF of 58%, paroxysmal AFib and flutter, and she's had an ablation. She's obese with a BMI of 39. She has CKD stage 3, coronary artery disease without any stents, diabetes, and hypertension. She takes warfarin, insulin, metoprolol, and torsamide. She worked as a hairdresser and account manager, and her father had an MI and her mother had heart failure. Christine, the addition of the past medical history here really helps try to understand what are the causes of progressive dyspnea in our patient, right? Because if you think about dyspnea in all comers, you can break that down by thinking, is it a pulmonary cause, a cardiovascular cause, or a hematologic cause with anemia? But thinking that this is a patient who has heart failure, maybe these are her typical heart failure symptoms, and it's reasonable, potentially in that case, to titrate oral diuretic therapy. But then also she's got a mechanical mitral valve replacement. So is this prosthetic valve dysfunction? Could it be a prosthetic valve endocarditis? She's got CKD3 at baseline. And so you wonder, could this be a progression of kidney disease? She has diabetes, so she could certainly have a nephrotic 
kidney disease. And so that could certainly cause uh, weight gain and dyspnea from kidney failure itself. She has uh, arrhythmia, so that certainly can be a cause, uh, electrical cause of heart failure in that context. So there's a lot of um, things to parse out here, but it sounds like we need more information. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things right now we are doing so much over the phone and with telemedicine, which is great. And this patient is connected with our heart failure clinic that over the phone, she actually says the words, I feel like my chest is full of fluid from heart failure because she knows you know, what it feels like to be in heart failure. So it's very easy to just titrate medications. But like you said, with her past medical history, there are so many other nuances that without doing a physical exam or labs or any testing, it's hard to parse out. So if we meet her in the ED, and then when you see her, you do think she's volume up. You see that she has JVD, she has bivasilar crackles, you hear her mechanical S1 click. Thankfully, she's still on room air, citing 93%. She's conversant. She's happy and talking to you. Her blood pressure is normal. She's not hypotensive. Um, her extremities are warm. She does have two plus pitting edema. And so right away when we're categorizing how sick she is or how urgent something is, we would put her in the warm but wet category. And then when you get some labs, it further supports your theory of a heart failure exacerbation. Her NT probian P is 5,000. Her baseline is 2,000. Her creatinine is thankfully still at her baseline of 1.4. And I think it's important to point out at this point that we don't really have an exact reason for this decompensation. As Christine had mentioned, she was calling into the clinic and was describing dyspnea. We had been increasing her diuretic dose and I think an important point to make that she was on a fairly stable dose of diuretics up to that point for a year or so and was doing quite well on it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she starts to get more dyspneic. And that's a little bit concerning when you start to increase diuretics and all of a sudden somebody is not feeling well despite your intervention. I think we do a pretty good job, most of us, of ruling out some of those more common things, right? If somebody's not taking their meds, maybe they're changing their diet and eating more salt. As you had mentioned, things like valve disease or a drop in EF. I think most of us rule these things out, but when we can't find an answer, I think that's when we really have to dig deep and think about some of these less common things. And I think this is a case that really highlights the importance of asking that why and really nailing down the pathophysiology because it really will change your management. And again, I think this case is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And so that's the part of the history that you may not get from the patient, but you may actually get from looking at the medical record. And so if you notice from her medical record before this hospitalization, beforehand, she had regular six-month checkups in the heart failure clinic, and she was always doing well. She didn't need any changes in meds. She didn't have dyspnea. And then six months prior to this presentation, she starts coming to clinic about once a month. Every time she says she's sort of Beth, she has exertional dyspnea. And then Every time her diuretics get increased, it changes from Lasix to torsamide, is 20 BID, and then next month 40, 20, and then 60, 20, and then 80, 60. And so when you look at this, it shapes our chronicity even further. It's not something that started two weeks ago. It's actually something that started six months ago. Thanks, Christine. That is a really good point. And framing chronicity is just absolutely essential to make so many of our diagnoses. It's almost like the key that unlocks so many different clues and also tips us off to look for something deeper than, you know, just what's going on in the last couple of weeks. But to really take that bird's eye view, we have to remember that just because somebody has, let's say, a, a valve replacement and takes care of the primary problem for that valve, say, for example, rheumatic heart disease, and they have, let's say, severe mitral stenosis and get a valve, 
that doesn't necessarily put an end to that era of rheumatic heart disease because, you know, over time, presumably she developed symptoms and also cardiac remodeling from the mitral stenosis. And so she potentially carries some of the remodeling and changes with her today, even though we fixed her valve. And so, you know, maybe potentially she has something that sets her up to be more susceptible to heart failure, even though her valve is replaced. And let's assume that it's functioning well. And obviously, we'll get to an echo that may or may not describe that to be the case. So again, really part of the whole context of the patient is just so essential for heart failure and really got to put it all into context and put it all back together. That's a really good point. And specific to rheumatic heart disease with mitral valve stenosis, over time, even though initially it's a group two or left heart mediated or post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, over time you can get vascular remodeling and develop a true pulmonary arterial hypertension from remodeling that can outlast and, and essentially remains after fixing the mitral stenosis. And the second point, of course, is that rheumatic heart disease, while mitral stenosis is probably the most common valvular manifestation, it doesn't always spare the other valves. And so you can definitely have involvement of the aortic valve and the tricuspid valve. And all these things are helpful to think about what's going on in our host. You know, and related to the mitral valve, she has a mechanical valve. She's on anticoagulation. Could she have had occult GI bleeding related to warfarin use and supertherapeutic INRs that could be leading to dyspnea and uh, sort of a high output type heart failure and shortness of breath because of decreased oxygen carrying capacity. So there's so much richness in this patient, but at least we have labs to show she doesn't have anemia. One other thing that I'll reflect on the history uh, while we're here and then we'll move on. She talked about this fullness in her chest. And I like think about that a lot when patients describe things that I literally cannot even comprehend. Like I've had chest pain from occasional GERD or whatever, you know, something that can like give me chest pain. And obviously like this burrito. Yeah, like this burrito. It's more when I lie down because I'm too bloated. But let's not go there, guys. <laughs> it doesn't end well. But I, I, like, <laughs> like I have. I've had just discomfort that I can relate. Thank goodness I've never had the experience of having an MI. I hope to never have it. But something about that description of my chest is full that I recognize as a pattern of heart failure. And I'm particularly appreciative when a patient says, hey, last time I had this sensation, I had heart failure. I was treated with an increased diuretic regimen. It got better. This is definitely my heart failure. So I can almost hug the patient when they tell me that because (laughs) it lets me go forward with them. But it's something that I literally cannot understand. Like I just have a hard time wrapping my head around that symptom. So anyway, so just something that I think about when patients tell me that. But let's take it back to this patient. What happens next? Do you have any more information about her? Okay, so we'll go over some of the testing results. She has this history of her AFib and flutter and ablation. So looking at her EKG, she is in a sinus rhythm, and she hasn't noticed any return of her AFib. And then we get a chest X-ray, and we're looking for things that could otherwise explain her dyspnea. We don't find an acute infiltrate that would point to a pneumonia. She does have some minor pulmonary edema and some minor cardiomegaly. And she does have this convexity that would suggest some left atrial enlargement. On her echo, she does have a prior preserved ejection fraction, and it still is preserved at 62%. Her IVC is 2.5 centimeters and collapsible, um, suggesting that overload. Her mean PA pressure is 44 When we're looking at her prior history of the mitral valve, we want to make sure, is there any new abnormality? And we don't see that. She has a mitral valve gradient of 5.1. And then as far as her pulmonary status, we don't see any new RV dysfunction. And I do think it's important to point out the fact that this is a TT at this point. You do have a mechanical mitral valve in place. There's a lot of shadowing that occurs. So evaluation sometimes is inadequate, especially for things like MR 
and it just overall the gradients are, are are helpful, especially when unchanged in comparison to prior. And you can obviously look at prior TTEs, but that is something if you have a clinical suspicion that you may need to perform something else in order to get a true assessment of how well that valve is functioning. So our patient gets admitted to medicine. She started on furosemide 40 IVBID, and she's negative only 500 milliliters the first day. So she switched to bumetanide, one milligram IV daily. And after another two days, she's negative two liters now, and she's lost three pounds. And if you look at her labs, you go, "Uh uh-oh, her creatinine goes up from 1.4 to 2. And at this point, the inpatient team says, oh, her GVP looks a little bit down. She says she feels a little bit better. So you think maybe she's euvolemic. And then you hold diuretics because you say, well, she's probably been over diuresed. Christine, you made a perfect point about renal function and this phenomenon that we have all come across at some point of worsening renal function in the setting of aggressive diuresis. And I think the question is always, is this something that's more hemodynamic related in terms of fluid shifts? Or is this something that's really truly a tubular injury, if you will. And I think there's some data out there that argues that a little bit of a bump in in renal function may not be as bad as we once thought, and it may not actually be indicative of tubular injury in the setting of diuresis. We, in the last couple of years, had the good fortune of being able to hear from Dr. Testani, who came over here from Yale to give our grand rounds. And he's done some remarkable work. Christine, I think you were actually there for that talk. So Andrew and I have been talking a lot about this because we're in this situation so often. We admit someone who we think is overloaded, we diurese, and then the creatinine goes up. And the reflex is to hold diuretics. And before we know it, we're not really sure what the volume status is in what feels like a half-hearted attempt at diuresis. And then we don't know what to do. We have our tools like our JVP, our symptoms, our creatinine. We try to do a bedside ultrasound, but not infrequently we struggle to put all of those things together. So when there's a creatinine bump like this, everyone has a different comfort level, but there's actually evidence for this very situation. And one of the things that Dr. Testani talks a lot about is that when you aggressively diurese and the creatinine is rising, there is an increase in those tubular injury biomarkers, but you have good renal recovery at 60 days. But it's hard to comfort an inpatient team with this, right? As the inpatient team, you're never going to see that improvement that happens 60 days later. And nobody wants to be that person who discharges a patient with an uptrending creatinine. And this can be controversial, but if you have a decline in that kidney function and an increase in tubular injury markers, those are the people with actually the best outcomes in terms of survival. And if you don't have change or if you have an improvement in kidney functions, those are the people with actually the worst outcomes. And I feel like this is sometimes like the dirty little secret of heart failure. Dr. Tesswani talks about these absolutely insane diuretic doses that no self-respecting cardio nerd would ever be caught prescribing. But in reality, it's like, it's a little more complicated. The changes in renal function and the clinical outcomes is more like a bell curve. But I think the learning point is that this reflex that we all have to hold diuretics when the creatinine increases is not supported by the evidence. Just to add some context, the biomarkers that Christine is talking about are things like NAG or KIM-1. These are things that are most often send out labs and they're not really going to be the most clinically relevant because they often take so much time to come back. 
And they're very useful in studies. But again, to the point that you just made, Christine, I think it's important to differentiate this idea of true tubular injury versus just a hemodynamic shift that's causing this drop in GFR. And it may not be as dangerous as we once thought, as some of these papers suggest. Now, that's not to say that this debate is over. There's plenty of data that we need to go through and plenty of more studies that we need to perform in order to really answer the question of how bad are these changes in GFR in the setting of an acute heart failure exacerbation with aggressive diuresis. Andrew, Christine, this is an absolute fabulous discussion. And I am going to do a lot more reading about this because this is uh, really interesting and really also very helpful. The caveat that I'll make is that if you have a patient that you've just admitted, you've clearly diagnosed them with wet and warm heart failure, and you basically double their home diuretic, you go IV, and their creatinine is on the rise, and you assume it's renovascular congestion, and they are not responsive to the output that you expect them to be often the case is that they require some sort of afterload reduction agent. So sometimes a little uh, afterload reduction could actually help with forward flow through the heart, even though they're technically warm, they might be on the spectrum of less warm and not perfusing the kidneys as well. And when you reduce the afterload somewhat a little bit more, it allows them to offload the heart and get more of the blood to the kidneys so that the kidneys are like, okay, I see the fluid. I see you, Mr. Heart or Mrs. Heart, and I'm going to make urine. And so basically that sometimes is very important as well, because what could happen is people give the diuretic, they go 40 IV of furosemide, didn't work, 80 IV of furosemide, and then the creatinine continues to rise from the original renovascular congestion, which hasn't really improved yet. And then they get nervous and they say, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my patient doesn't really have wet and warm heart failure. And maybe my volume exam is not actually accurate. And maybe they're actually dry. And that's why their creatinine is going up. You got to look at your patient. If that JVP is up and they have the peripheral edema and you've really proven to yourself that they have volume up, you're in the right. Sometimes it just takes a different treatment strategy to help get blood flow to the kidney to help with diuresis. And oftentimes you'll see that all of a sudden you start that hydralazine and ISDN and now the urine's flowing like crazy and you're like, wow, we actually didn't need all this diuretic dosing. We can start scaling back on the diuresis. So that's another situation that I think is a little bit different than what we're talking about here, where you are getting good adequate diuresis, but the renal function is still, quote unquote, changing for what looks like the worst. Is that right, guys? Absolutely. And Dan, I love that you brought up this point of doubting yourself. I think this case and some others very much like it, where you have a bunch of conflicting data, where maybe the weight's going one direction, the renal function's going the other and you're sort of doubting yourself in terms of your volume exam, I think it really highlights how messy heart failure can be in the real world. We all love those situations where everything goes right, but oftentimes that's not the scenario that we find ourselves in. And when that happens, I think it's important to take the next step and do further studies to really hammer down what's going on. Yeah. And I think I'll just piggyback on here because when there is a disconnect, and I I think the, the teaching here that you emphasize, Christine, is when there is a rise in creatinine that's appropriate for diuresis, that shouldn't be alarming to us. That just probably means that we're doing a good job diuresing. But if the rise in creatinine seems to be out of proportion, despite escalating doses of diuretics, and there does appear to be a disconnect, then there are two situations that come to mind. Either the physical exam, our bedside evaluation, is not truly reflective of the preload. And so you can imagine a situation where, for whatever reason, the patient has uh, SVC stenosis or something along those lines where the JVP may be elevated, but is not truly reflective of the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, for instance, the true LV preload. 
The other situation is structural problems where the heart essentially needs a very high preload and become very sensitive to decreasing preload. And so things like uh, constrictive pericarditis, restrictive cardiomyopathy, uh, obstructive type lesions like severe pulmonary hypertension, mitral stenosis. So for all of these reasons, I love the point, Andrew, that if there is a disconnect, either to verify what the true preload is or to diagnose a structural problem that lends itself to being so preload dependent, we just need more structural and hemodynamic information to guide us sometimes. That's perfect. So you have basically told us that we need that information. And when you look at this case, after they held diuretics, for the next three days, her creatinine is basically the same. It's 2.1, 2, and 2.1. She gains weight again. She's still a little short of breath. She's frustrated because she wants to go home to her niece's birthday party. The inpatient team is frustrated. And so that's when cardiology and nephrology get on board. And we recognize this difficulty, right? And some things are not making sense. So when we don't know what to do and what do we do, we take her to the table of truth. Um, we <laughs> decided to take her for a right heart cath. So in the right heart cath, she has a right atrial pressure of 9, RV pressure and systolic of 80 and diastolic of 10. Her PA pressures are 70 over 25 with a mean of 40. And her witch is 30 um, with these giant V waves in the pressures in the 70s. And then her SVR is 872. And then we get to her cardiac output, which is insane at 11. And her cardiac index is 5.2. And we look at these giant V waves and it's, she must have MR. And that's why our diuretics aren't working. We have to treat her MR. And when we look at the cardiac index, we realize she also has high output heart failure. Can I ask you, was the cardiac output and index, was that done by FIC or by thermodilution? That was thermodilution. The FIC numbers are 8.6 and 4.22. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. So I'll just say that these giant V waves on the wedge pressure tracing really give you a, a high index of suspicion that this is severe MR with a huge backflow of blood coming back into your pressure gauge at the tip of that PA catheter. And reflecting back on Andrew's point that on a transthoracic echo with a metallic valve, you may not get the best assessment. And so we may need more information to verify the degree of MR. I'll just add one other point. We recently had a discussion about these giant V waves in the setting of MR, and sometimes you could have severe MR and not see the giant V waves. And one of the pearls that we had talked about at that discussion was that the V waves are a pressure waveform that we see. And remember, they're not volume, so it's pressure. And remember that when we have our wedge catheter up, what we're really doing is we're sensing the pressure that's in the pulmonary venous system, which again, if there's no obstruction between the venous system and the left atrium is really a surrogate of the pressure in the left atrium. And again, we're trying to infer what the pressures are in the left ventricle by way of the left atrium through that pathway. Well, if the left atrium is super stiff or it's super ginormous and very accommodating of fluid, in both cases, the V waves may be altered. So for example, if you have a ginormous atrium the size of Manhattan, which if you haven't been to Manhattan, it looks very big when you're there, you're going to absorb that volume without necessarily having a change in pressure. But if you have a very stiff atrium, left atrium, which this patient may have some risk for given her history of rheumatic heart disease, maybe she had a lot of atrial remodeling earlier on, then there's a potential that those V waves could be exacerbated because again, smaller changes of volume could make more drastic changes in pressure. Um, guys, 
It's been a really great discussion, but I'm being called for an emergency way back in Baltimore. So I'm about to jet on over to Baltimore and I cannot wait to listen to this discussion. I'm sure Amit will be telling me all about it all night long tonight. So, <laughs> go, uh, Good luck, man. It was great to save a life. I love you guys. Mwah, mwah, mwah. <laughs> me, me call. Bye, guys. Take care of it, Dan. Oh, man. Life in an interventionalist. That's right. <laughs> Those were some great pearls that Dan just dropped. How are we interpreting these cath numbers and what's our next step? So these giant V waves are, are suggesting, just tempting us with MR, and which we didn't see in the TTE. So the next thing is to do a TEE to go looking for that MR. And then in the TEE, she has a perfectly appropriately functioning mechanical valve without any stenosis or regurgitation. And that's when we realize that the V waves are not from MR, but that she has a non-compliant left atrium. So we diagnose her with stiff left atrial syndrome. Oh, wow. So how, how did you diagnose? Like, well, how did you make the diagnosis of stiff left atrial syndrome? So stiff left atrial syndrome is really diagnosed by evidence of these large V waves and an absence of any other thing that could potentially cause these big V waves, which would be MR or pulmonary vein stenosis. So stiff left atrial syndrome is really caused by loss of compliance in the LA or an LA diastolic dysfunction, if you will. Some sort of inciting event causes a degree of scarring, which then leads to that loss of compliance. And kind of like we were talking about earlier in the discussion, causes a degree of pulmonary venous hypertension and heart failure. And that's really how these patients will present is they come in with dyspnea, orthopnea, volume overload, very much like this patient. And the diagnosis is really cinched by invasive hemodynamics. You have large V waves in the absence of things like MR or pulmonary vein stenosis that would potentially cause those large V waves in the wedge position. Now, I think one of the critical teaching points of this case are really what causes stiff left atrial syndrome, all three of which she has. So mitral valve surgeries, rheumatic valve disease, I think those two go hand in hand just because they're often associated with the radiographic finding that we'll get into in a moment, and I'll talk about it then. But I think atrial fibrillation ablations, or really ablations in general, are probably the most important risk factor. I say that because we're doing more and more of them. And we have the good fortune of being able to work here with Drs. Gibson and Dr. Haywood, who were really instrumental in describing this phenomenon of stiff LA within the population of patients who undergo ablation. They published uh, their findings back in 2011 in Heart Rhythm, looking at about 1,400 patients who had undergone ablation. They found an incidence of around 1.4%. And that might not sound like a whole lot, but as we get more and more data about the effectiveness of ablations, particularly in heart failure patients. I mean, I know we had the, the good fortune of being able to listen to Dr. Pacini on your podcast. There are trials like the Cabana trial, Castle AF, for example. Those really show a lot of quality of life improvement and decreases in hospitalizations for these HEF-REF patients. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this diagnosis down the road because despite what you might think about some of the, the data or how those trials were done, the fact of the matter is if you look at how often ablations are performed, they're only going up. And as we do more and more of them, I think this is a diagnosis that you should really keep in your minds, particularly for the, the patients who undergo ablations. I'm so glad that you guys brought this case to us because stiff left atrial syndrome uh, honestly isn't a condition that was really in my playbook when I approached patients with uh, heart failure symptoms until I read about it earlier today. And I realized that one, the left atrium is such an active participant 
in the cardiac function. Like it's not just a passive conduit, but it's a reservoir. It's got its own systolic function that contributes very significantly to the total preload and uh, hence cardiac output. Uh, and then also what I read was for the diagnosis of stiff left atrial syndrome, one of the classic features, at least hemodynamically, is a large differential between the wedge pressure and the LVEDP. So essentially, if you have a simultaneous left and a right heart catheter, and that differential, you know, whenever you have a pressure gradient, it's because there's a resistor in the middle. The resistance can come from, as you said, pulmonary vein stenosis. And typically, I would think of uh, mitral valve stenosis, especially when somebody has a prosthetic mitral valve. Or now I'm adding to that list of differential diagnoses for myself, a stiff left atrium itself can cause that differential. So that's one of the diagnostic features that I, I recently learned. And then also in today's age, with such a, a high frequency of patients who've had atrial ablations, and I imagine probably more so with, and I, don't, I haven't read this, but I would imagine more so with uh, RF ablations, where it's not just uh, pulmonary veins, but also doing the posterior atrial wall, because the more you do, the more you burn, probably the more atrium is going to be stiff. But also historically, before catheter-based atrial ablation took such a prominent stage, mechanical mitral valve replacement was also one of the originally defined culprits, apparently. So this patient is just set up with a number of risk factors for developing a stiff left atrium. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm glad you brought that point up. These patients will often come in, and it's so easy to sort of not really think about it because they will often come in just with classic heart failure symptoms, and you label them as either HEF-PEF or HEF-REF put them on diuretics. And oftentimes, they're going to do just fine, very much like in our patient, actually. She was on a stable dose of diuretics. And chances are, she had this stiff left atrium for a while. She had all these risk factors dating back years prior to her presentation. And the fact of the matter is, I think this is a chronic issue for her. And then something else pushed her into the heart failure realm of being overloaded and coming in with an acute exacerbation. So I think the vast majority of the time, people don't really think about it, A, because they may not know about it, but B, because they might be doing really well and it might not clinically matter because they might just be on a stable dose of diuretics and go about their lives in NYHA class one category. But I think it's an important thing to know and understand because sometimes patients don't do so well. There have been case reports that look at things like atrial septostomies for those who just don't get any benefit from diuretics. And it seems in the cases that they have done this procedure that there is some benefit in terms of NYHA class reduction uh, and really just overall quality of life. So a good diagnosis to be aware of, because again, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of it. So the TEE that we got really helped us in ruling out any dysfunction with her mechanical valve. So we know that she didn't have MR and she also didn't have significant gradients across her pulmonary vein. And so we have now diagnosed her with stiff left atrial syndrome. But the other wrench to the story is that this doesn't explain her high output heart failure. And when you look at that, she doesn't seem to have major risk factors except for her obesity, which is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we decide to go looking further to look for structural disease. And that's when she gets a cardiac CT. With her cardiac CT, we don't see any shunt or structural disease, but she has these very severe calcifications all around her left atrium, what we call coconut or porcelain left atrium, which is also consistent with what we've already found is her stiff left atrial syndrome. Wow. I've never heard of the term coconut left atrium before. It sounds like something you'd want to have, but uh, this, uh, <laughs> if, you know, for the people listening in, uh, just make sure you take a look at these images because this is really very impressive degree of calcification uh, around the atrial rim. And again, I think the timing of this is important to point out. So we have a CT scan from back when she had her mitral valve replaced. 
And it didn't show any sort of left atrial calcification. And only after she actually had her mitral valve intervention did she develop these calcifications. So a porcelain LA has been described in two scenarios, really. One is classically rheumatic valve disease. I think that's the stereotypical situation in which people have seen this scenario. But the other one that's less commonly thought of is mitral valve intervention. It seems like in this case, it really was the mitral valve surgery that caused her to develop this finding of a porcelain LA. Now, in terms of clinical significance, it's important to think of and know about because in terms of interventions, it sort of limits your options, right? Getting into a calcified left atrium or puncturing through a calcified interatrial septum can be a little bit of an issue. So that's really when it becomes a clinical problem. I have a serious question. Do you prefer coconut left atrium or porcelain left atrium? <laughs> I, I, I kind of uh, I have deference to coconut left atrium. More I, li- I like it too. Now, if you look in the literature, they are two separate entities, if you will. It depends on whether the interatrial uh, wall is involved and that kind of thing. But I, I personally prefer the coconut LA. <laughs> <laughs> so these are great points. I think clinically, this is an important entity to know just to understand why a patient is having the symptoms. And of course, this patient has these V waves at rest, but you can imagine a patient who maybe only develops this at exercise. And so there was a nice review or a case report rather that essentially the patient had these HEFPEF diagnosis and ended up having a CPET because at rest, the hemodynamics look normal, but with exercise, they develop these huge V waves and a massive increase in pressure. And so that was how they wound up with that diagnosis. So just uh, nuances in that, that diagnosis of it. And then also Treatment-wise, I love that you highlighted that there really isn't any specific treatment for this per se. One, maybe in terms of thinking about uh, how to prevent the development and the approach or how aggressively we ablate, perhaps, that might be something to consider. But I want to get back to your point, Andrew. She's clearly had this coconut left atrium for quite some time. Why is it that she's had this sort of escalating doses of diuretics for the past few weeks, as Christine was mentioning in her history, like what changed and why would a left at- a porcelain left atrium or a coconut left atrium shouldn't cause this high output situation? And so what's your approach to uh, a differential diagnosis for high output heart failure? And how do you go about diagnosing it at this point based on that differential? Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point to make is, again, she's had this chronic issue for a while and then something tipped her over and it may be related to this high output, right? Because if you think about it, this high output is going to cause an already baseline elevated left atrial pressure to get even worse. And I think that's probably what tipped her over. Now, in terms of the differential, there are a variety of things that we commonly think of, right? So things of more metabolic or endocrine in nature, I should say, I will tell you that her TSH was normal, free T4 was normal as well. We did do that invasive hemodynamics that didn't show anything in terms of a shunt run. That was negative. The CT scan didn't show any structural disease, as Christine has already mentioned. So then you're left thinking about some of the more rare diseases, and specifically beriberi, right? So a thymine was checked, I believe it was around 24 or so, Christine? 21, and normal greater than 70. Okay. So, and again, this is something that we don't, it may be on our radar and we may think about it in our differentials from time to time, but it's not something that we see very commonly in the States. And just to get down the pathophysiology or talk about that a little bit, it's a vitamin B1 deficiency. It's a water-soluble vitamin. It's really common in a lot of our foods, hence why we don't really see it all that often. So it's in beans, meats, whole grains. And when I was actually going through this patient case, because I was the fellow who was taking care of her, I was reading about things like decrease in efficiency in the ATP production due to pyruvate dehydrogenase complex inhibition. And that's sort of the the running theory. Now, if you're anything like me, just reading that sends like chills down your spine and flashbacks to biochemistry. 
and just like memorizing endless loops. But I think it's an important point to make that it's just not something that we think of often, but it's something that can certainly rear its ugly head from time to time. And really, I think the biggest teaching point in this case is that she doesn't really have any risk factors other than one. So there's really four main ones. Alcoholics is a big one, weight loss surgery, strict dietary habits. And the fourth one that we don't really think about all that often is diuretic use. There have been studies that look at furosemide use and show that up to 90% of patients on furosemide can actually have some degree of thymine deficiency. Now, that's not to say that every single one of them is going to develop beriberi because that's clearly not the case. We don't see it often enough. But I think the fact is when you are on some sort of diuretic, and any diuretic, this has been shown in thiazides, in acetazolamide use, you have a tremendous amount of urinary loss of thymine. It can lead to situations like this where you can develop pathology. And again, answering that why and the reason for somebody's decompensation is incredibly important as we see in this case, because we ended up supplementing her and ended up having a pretty good outcome, as Christine will tell you about. Yeah. So just so you guys know what happens to her, she's treated with thiamine. And at that point, we are satisfied cardio nerds and discharge her in time for her niece's birthday party. And when she follows up, she says she feels great. She's able to walk around. Her dyspnea has improved and she is beyond thankful. Wow. That is amazing. And just another point, actually, we ended up doing a repeat cath that showed her outputs drop to somewhere around five, I believe, on by thermodilution. Yeah. So her repeat cardiac index is 2.74, cardiac output 5.7. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this case is just, uh, I, I mean, I applaud you guys for thinking through this and making such a diagnosis and really uh, taking a complicated picture together, understanding her underlying structural problem. I mean, she's got this underlying stiff left atrial syndrome, which is indolent until it was stressed, you know, kind of going over how a patient may have normal resting hemodynamics, but that worsened with exercise. This was her exercise, you know, this high output heart failure state was her exercise stress test that, that was essentially developing or subacutely and progressively over weeks. And again, I today I had the pleasure of learning both about stiff left atrial syndrome and about wet beriberi, things I uh, hadn't thought about for a long time. And, you know, I, there's a diagnostic criteria because the lab workup for thiamine deficiency is fraught with issues. Like uh, the thiamine blood level is not indicative of total body stores and acute illness can make it go low. And so you can't rely on that. But essentially, the diagnostic criteria boils down to the presence of heart failure, some index of low thiamine, but then improvement after thiamine is administered. And that really is like the, the thing that cinches the diagnosis here. This very dramatic improvement in hemodynamics and symptoms and functional capacity really shows that this is what What's going on? Your patient had wet beriberi superimposed on stiff left atrium. So really incredible. So guys, this case really, I have to say, elevated the whole platform because it's such a unique case and it shows a very refined level of clinical reasoning matched with advanced hemodynamic assessments and multimodality imaging, taking together the entire scope of her history and coming up with a diagnosis that you were able to do something about. And at the end of the day, got, got her to her niece's birthday, which was her goal. This case highlights so many things about cardiology, but I'd love to hear what made you guys decide to pursue cardiology and what makes your hearts flutter about training at Scripps? So in terms of cardiology, I always had this idea. Um, I was obsessed with the idea of saving people, which has always been a little bit naive, but I never let it go. And in cardiology, I saw cardiology and all the patients, and I thought that had the greatest opportunity to save people. And I thought that no matter how hard you worked or what you sacrificed, it was worth it. And at Scripps, 
you know, I did my residency here and you can become whatever you want to be here at Scripps, and whether it's research and academics with Scripps Research Institute, our integrative center or private practice. In our medical facility in the cardiology department, there is this a long hallway where all the cardiology attending offices are. And it's an intimidating hallway, if you think about to me anyway, but all the doors are open and I have so many memories in each of those rooms of people who have believed in me. And just last week, I was reading Echoes in one of the offices while drinking tea and listening to Britney Spears. So Scripps is really my home and my family. You know, and I think for me, to piggyback on what Christine just said, cardiology was such an appealing thing because we really do have that opportunity to intervene and to actually make a difference. And I think one of the best parts about it is that we have data behind a lot of the interventions that we do. We have tremendous opportunities to improve quality of life and mortality. And I think to me, that was one of the biggest appeals. On top of the fact that you really have some of the most interesting cases, and I think this case in particular was one of the best that I've had throughout my fellowship. And now I'm biased because I'd like to do heart failure in the future, but it entails so many things I really enjoy. Very complex hemodynamics, a case that's a little bit puzzling on top of all the modalities that we have at our disposal to help diagnose something. And then again, implement an intervention that actually makes a difference. And for me, Scripps really is a family. And I think Christine harps on it. A lot of us harp on it. But it really is one of those situations where that hallway of offices, I I am comfortable walking into just about every single office and asking a question. And I have never been turned down. Every single attending is more than happy to help me out, any of my co-fellows out, any of their fellow attendings out. And for me, that was really a palpable thing during my interview and something that I have found true to this day. And I chose Scripps to train and I've never regretted it. Christine and Andrew, this is such an incredible case discussion. I feel like I truly learned so much about two disease processes, not one, but you know, it was two for one that appear rare, probably in large part to how underappreciated they are. So thank you so much for walking us through this case, for teaching us. And I'm just so grateful to you guys for taking us to this bonfire and having this burrito. I, I hope that Dan's doing okay while he's addressing his emergency and doesn't have too much GERD because that would be unfortunate. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having us. And now for the ECPR from Dr. Haywood. He serves as the director of the Advanced Heart Failure and Mechanical Circulatory Support Program at Scripps Clinic, and he is our beloved teacher. He's well known for teaching us physical exams. And when I first met him in my intern year, I remember he turned to me in the middle of the clinic and he was like, let me see your hands. And I'm admittedly a little pale. So he's like, I think your hemoglobin is 12. Um, he believed in me when I wanted to go into cardiology. And now I thank him by keeping up, up all night when we're on call together. The biggest thing I've learned from him is that if you care, no one can ever take that away from you. So let's hear what Dr. Hayward has to say about his first experience with stiff left atrial syndrome. So the history of the stiff left atrium, at least in, as far as I'm concerned, is an interesting uh, journey for me that I remember quite well. So I had a patient who had HEFPEF. This was probably back in maybe 12 years ago or something. And she was very short of breath, had a lot of RV failure. So we capped her and she had these giant V waves in her, in her wedge pressure. And I thought, oh my God, I'm so stupid. She has severe MR and I've been treating her for HEFPEF, but she has severe MR. So I looked at her echo and she didn't have any MR, maybe trace. I did a TE and she didn't have any MR. So I'd always been taught that 
V waves were always indicative of severe mitral regurgitation. And I think even in hemodynamic textbooks, it pretty much says that right now. I didn't know how to put this case together. So I thought about it and thought about it. I thought about it for weeks, trying to understand what was going on. And finally, at two in the morning, I woke up and I woke my wife up and I said, her left atrium must be non-compliant. That's why there's a big V wave. And that's what's going on. I go, oh my gosh. And, and, you know, I'd been a cardiologist for 15 years at that point, and no one had ever told me about this. So I uh, started to look up and we weren't the first people to recognize this. There was a, an article in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology in 1988 called The Stiff Left Atrium. And that was a very interesting paper. Basically, this woman had mitral valve replacement with a St. Jude valve and was still extremely short of breath, had pulmonary hypertension. So they capped her and she had giant V waves. They said, oh my gosh. So they echoed her. They did an LV gram and there was absolutely no leak, zero. And so they came up with this term stiff left atrium. But it died there. And if you look in PubMed, there's little bits of stiff left atrium around 1987, 88, then not much. The guy next door to me was doing EP studies. And I told him about this, these V waves. And he says, I'm seeing big V waves when I do afib ablations. I don't know why that is. And then people would get very short of breath after the afib ablation. So we published, our first publication was in 2011 about this. And then we published again in 2014 and again in 2019. Now, once I had seen these V-waves, then I started to see them everywhere. Very often when I did a cath for HEFPEF, there were big V-waves there. And if you think about it, if you have a big V-wave, say the V-wave is 40 or 50, the RV has to generate at least that pressure to get blood into the left atrium. So a big V-wave causes obligate pulmonary venous hypertension. And when you have increased cardiac output when you walk, that makes it even bigger. So you see these big V waves typically in people that have AFib, so that the atrium doesn't move much, and so there isn't much compliance in the left atrium anymore. Typically, they have AFib. Not always. If they have high cardiac output, you can see big V waves. And the other place where we see V waves all the time is when we exercise people in the cath lab. And they might have a wedge pressure of 18 or something. But when they exercise, they get gigantic V waves up to 50. And this makes them very short breath. What's interesting now is that these devices that we're putting in his research put a little hole in the atrial septum to cut off the V wave. Now, this has been about a 12-year journey for me. And it's gone from trying to figure out what this meant to seeing it a lot of times. And now there's actually therapy for it. And and I still don't think people appreciate it very much and how important the V-waves are. One of the great things about this program is how collegial we are. So we just talk to each other all the time. Like I talked to Dr. Gibson about this and the V-waves he saw. And we had this uh, eminent cardiologist who's not working here now. He's retired, but Dr. Johnson, and he had seen V-waves too. So he knew about it. Dr. Johnson always knew about everything before you did. <laughs> but he was uh, he was the most interesting man in the world. He was very smart. But I love working here because of the collegiality of the place. And people don't tend to hoard ideas. They share ideas and you can work. And we published a number of things off of this because of our collaboration with people and had a tremendous opportunity to do research because it's such a busy place. So much going on, both inter- interventional, EP, we built up the heart failure program, the 
integrative service. So it has something for everyone. We have a very protective feeling for the fellows. I'm at a certain age where the fellows are about as old as my kids. They remind me of my children and they're they're middle age and they're struggling to understand all the things that are going on in cardiology. And one of the things I like to think is all the things I had to figure out on my own, I can help them figure out that before they even go into practice. So they don't have to figure out all these things like the stiff left atrium, how to understand pulmonary hypertension, how to treat heart failure. I had to think of, I had to mostly do this on my own. And if I can help the fellows come out of here with a great understanding of hemodynamics and how to manage patients, and also the hands-on approach to patients, examining patients, teaching the physical exam, why that's important. People become really superb clinical and academic cardiologists when they leave here. You know, we've had fellows get training. I have a fellow now that's at Cleveland Clinic. I've had fellows at Cleveland Clinic before, Stanford, Cedar sinai So they seem to like our fellows very much and think that they're well-trained. And I think that's a very good feather in our cap that these really great places think that we do a very good job on training fellows. And now for a message from our program director, Dr. Malhar Patel. Dr. Patel has been my program director now for many years, and I can tell you definitively that he is one of the best parts about this fellowship. He is an encyclopedia of knowledge. He cares about us deeply, and he listens to us. He has implemented a lot of change along with Dr. Suhar to this fellowship to make it the best experience that we can possibly have in fellowship. And not only is he an amazing mentor, he's a great teacher and just an overall amazing program director. So a message from Dr. Patel about the Scripps Cardiology Fellowship. Dr. Suhar and I took over the program about four or five years ago, and we sought out on a process to rebuild the program. We talked with faculty and fellows and had them imagine their ideal program, and then we went out and built it. We want to make sure that we found a balance between clinical exposure and procedural volume, as well as clinical research, as well as basic science research. From a clinical exposure standpoint, we wanted fellows that could walk into any emergency room or CCU in the country and be the strongest doctor in the facility. We wanted to create a fellowship program that had clinical research in terms of breadth and depth so that fellows can pursue any of their research interests. We also wanted to affiliate ourselves with Scripps Research, which is one of the preeminent non-for-profit biomedical research institutions in the world as part of our translational research track. One of the unique opportunities we hear at Scripps is this uh, integrative track which is the only integrative track in the country. We affiliate ourselves in that respect with the Scripps Center of Integrative Medicine, which is also one of the preeminent programs of prevention and integrative medicine in the United States. We also envision a program of post-fellowship success, whether fellows want to pick the program of their choice to go into subspecialty, pick the location of their choice, or pick the setting of their choice in terms of academic or clinical. And we've achieved that with a combination of research production and mentorship. As soon as a fellow identifies what their future goals are, we get to work right away on setting them up for success. One of the things that we're especially proud about at Scripps Clinic is the culture amongst our faculty and the fellows. It's a nice place to work. It's not a malignant institution, but at the same time, we have very high expectations and we help our fellows and faculty achieve them. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardiNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. 
If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. And just last week, I was reading Echoes in one of the offices while drinking tea and listening to Britney Spears. Britney Spears? (laughs) No judgments there. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. That's great. She did it again. (laughs) <laughs> it's our uh, standard echo playlist here at Scripps. Uh. <laughs> I love it. I love it.